you hardheads, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good whatever it is, wherever you are in this wonderful world of ours. Welcome to the Hard-Headed Sports Podcast, episode number 12, hosted by me, Nick Ryan. Man, I feel really good today. I feel really good today. It was one of those mornings where you wake up in the bed, uh, you woke up at a reasonable time, you think, wow, I got exactly the amount of sleep that I needed to. You go make yourself a cup of coffee. The coffee just hits different. You know, you feel energized. Go take a shower. If you're a morning shower person like myself, wake yourself up even a little bit more. And then even when you're brushing your teeth, you're looking at yourself in the mirror and say, man, you are one good looking person. Who cares if you have a receding hairline? <laughs> you are a good looking person. You go today. So hopefully that follows into the show today. We have a good show after a good morning. Before we get into the show today, I do want to quickly say thank you. The YouTube channel passed 100 subscribers earlier this morning. We had a couple of videos do really well over the past week or so. And obviously, I know that number could dip below the 100 subscriber mark. Um, on the early days of YouTube, there's people that are going to like your content and then, you know, un and then not like your content. And those numbers can fluctuate a little bit, um, especially for smaller channels that are starting to figure their way into the algorithm. Um, I know that those numbers can fluctuate, but the fact that we hit the 100 the triple digit mark in just under a month of actually posting videos on the channel is absolutely incredible so thank you all for the support it's greatly appreciated hopefully we can continue to create really good content and push the momentum forward so thank you for helping me reach that mark and hopefully we have a good show today after i had a really good morning and with a really nice surprise and waking up to that milestone so let's just get into it into it today i hope you guys are having a fantastic wednesday let's go let's talk some sports a variety of topics today on the show last friday on the show i talked a lot about the david cully hire with the houston texans and i also combined that with my take of absolute shock on how eric bnma has once again for the second straight coaching carousel cycle for the second straight year that eric bnma has not come away with a head coaching job and I talked a lot about David Culley and how I felt that it was a stretch of a hire for the Houston Texans, regardless of the fact that Culley has had 27 years of coaching experience, multiple quarterback coaching and wide receiver coaching positions in his 27 years. But I felt like the fact that he has never held a coordinator's position, he's never had another head coaching job. Uh, and the fact that the Houston Texans had potentially Deshaun Watson's approval and, you know, Final straw on the line. The Texans went out and hired David Culley instead of hiring somebody like Eric Bieniemy, And I thought that was a big stretch of a decision, regardless of whether or not David Culley actually ends up being a good hire. That remains to be seen. But in the moment, I thought, wow, with, with Deshaun Watson on the line, potentially your last ditch effort to keep Deshaun Watson in Houston, you go and hire a Ravens assistant head coach who has never held a coordinator's position who's never had a head coaching job in the NFL. And I you know I was pretty pretty content with that take at the time, but after, you know, watching it back, cutting up the highlights for YouTube, I decided, well, maybe I was a little bit unfair towards David Culley and a little bit too biased towards Eric Bieniemy. So, uh, that segment got left on the cutting room floor. It made its way into the podcast, but the folks of you who are specifically watching on YouTube, you didn't get to see it. And then I watched the Nick Sirianni <laughs> <laughs> head coach uh, introductory press conference for the Philadelphia Eagles yesterday or or, or Monday or whenever the, the, pre the press conference was. 
you know, I was satisfied with my decision. I'm like, you know what? I was a bit unfair to Cully. Let's give him some time. Let's watch the introductory press conference and see how he does. And maybe he'll end up being a good hire. And, you know, maybe I was being too biased to be anime. So we'll see. And like I said, then I watched the Sirianni press conference and I'm like, oh my God. Now I am definitely more content in my opinion that I am absolutely flabbergasted that Eric B. Anime didn't get a head coaching job. And uh, regardless of what happens to David Cully, that remains to be seen. It's more about the how how did Bianame not get a coaching job for the second straight year? Watching this 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 Eagles head coach introductory press conference was one of the most awkward, cringeworthy press conferences I've seen in a long time in any league from any coach or any player. It was unsettling to get to get through and maybe unsettling is not the right word but I I said a w- about a week ago on the show that I didn't like the Sirianni hire I think he's going to be a fall guys for the a fall guy for the Eagles front office if and when Carson once can't turn it around in Philadelphia I said the Sirianni hire is a gamble to try and fix Wentz, that probably won't pay off, and he is a guy that has no power under Jeffrey Lurie and Howie Roseman, and they will have the ability to control him as a first-time head coach. And as I said, after watching that press conference, I'm not going to say that I was right about this, because that, again, that remains to be seen. But, again, how how did this man... Get a head coaching job over somebody like Eric Bieniemy. Like I understand the reasoning behind it, but the press conference turned me off so badly. I don't know about anybody else, but that press conference turned me off so badly. Like he looked terrified. He absolutely looked terrified. It was like a college kid that typed up his essay for the public speaking course that everybody's required to take, and he typed it up the morning before. And he didn't look like an NFL head coach. He did not look or sound like what you would expect your professional league head coach to sound like. And honestly, I had a hard time getting through the press conference um, watching that. It was that awkward. You know, I don't I don't know if he was just overly nervous or or maybe he was his his essay his his notes were altered in some way by Roseman and Lori something felt incredibly off about that press conference and I went back and I watched some of Sirianni's older press conferences with the Colts and the personality was mostly the same but he did not look nearly as terrified and again I'm not sure whether he was just nervous this being his first head coaching job in the NFL or if in some way you know Maybe he was told to say things by Roseman and Lurie that maybe he didn't agree with. Something felt off, and it felt very awkward to watch. And I, I couldn't help but thinking, I couldn't help but think while watching that, like, man, Philadelphia, the Philadelphia fans are going to eat this man for breakfast. They're going to eat this man alive. If this, if this is more consistently who Nick Sirianni is, the Eagles fans are going to eat him alive. Hell, the Eagles fans ate alive Andy Reid when he was in Philadelphia. And Reid, obviously, is now a Super Bowl winning head coach with one of the most prolific offenses in the history of the NFL. I am genuinely worried for Sirianni in the in in Philadelphia. Now, you know, again. It, it also kind of felt like, I don't know, it, it felt like 
maybe like if Sirianni was a play actor or whatever, and he was brought on at the last minute and he doesn't have his line memorized and Howie Roseman and Jeffrey Lurie are like pushing him on stage. Like, come on, get out there, kid. You got it. You're going to do great. And then, and then he sits up there, trips over his words, gives some really weird analogies to be giving for, for an NFL football coach. I think at one point he, he gave an analogy about the Villanova basketball team in a football conference. I mean, it's just like, he looked terrified. He looked absolutely terrified. Now, a couple of points here. I understand that not everybody is good at public speaking. It's difficult. This, this is difficult. Not everybody can do it. I understand that I'm just one guy in a room talking to a camera, but in any situation, public speaking is not easy. You know, I was a bit of a theater dork in high school. You know, I was in the, the the high school play pretty much every single year that I was a that I was in high school. And you know, and I had people come up to me afterwards and say, "Dude, like, how did you memorize all those lines? How did you stand up there and perform them? Like, so not I'm not gonna say so well, but how how did you remember all those enough to you know go out on stage and say them all perfectly without missing a beat? And obviously, some of it is practice. And I guarantee you, Nick Sirianni did not get the practice that I got while rehearsing for a high school play for this press conference, right? But my point being is that some people are good at public speaking, some people aren't, and you know, depending on what side of the brain you know you're you're mentally favored to be. Some people are math and science people, other people are history and English people, and predominantly those who are good at history and English are also very good at public speaking and yada yada yada. It's not for everybody, so I can je- definitely understand if Nick Sirianni was nervous. But if this is how Sirianni talks publicly, and this is how he interviewed for the job, I have no idea how he got the job other than the fact that Lori and Howie Roseman were looking for a controllable yes-man. And maybe that is some confirmation bias on my part, admittedly. But if, that, if, if, if how Sirianni appeared in that press conference was also how Sirianni appeared in the interviewing process, then it's no wonder why the Philadelphia Eagles hired this man, especially for what they want, which is somebody that they control, a la not Doug Peterson, into trying to correct Carson Wentz and keep Carson Wentz as the, as the starting quarterback for the Philadelphia Eagles. Now, with that all being said, communication is one of the most important qualities in my mind that a good head coach must have. Somebody who cannot, you know, only tell you what he needs from you, but can connect with you on a personal basis and inspire you. Uh, you, you hear the expression, want to make you run through a wall. That is what your head coach, in my mind, is supposed to do for you. And if this is who Nick Sirianni is, if the person that we saw in the press conference is who Nick Sirianni is, again... The Eagles are not going to be inspired by him. They're not going to take in. The communication is not going to be good. And the, the Eagles fan base is going to eat this man alive. Um, first impressions are everything. And this was probably the one of the worst first impressions I've seen from a head coach in a long time. And, you know, there's, there's, generally, there's generally two camps when it comes to this. It's either give him some slack, he was nervous, and wow, that was one of the worst things I've ever seen. And I think that even though I'm trending towards, wow, that was awful, the truth of it lies somewhere in the middle. The truth lies somewhere in the middle, and somewhere, some way, somebody is conceding the fact, or, or conceding what happened and trying to support their way of thinking by ignoring what happened. Um... You know, at the end of the day, all that really matters is the product that's on the football field. 
and not not every not every good coach is a good interview. Not every coach is a good speaker. But at the end of the day, wouldn't you want the head coach of your professional football team to have the attribute of being able to communicate with the media well and communicate with other people well? Now, I don't know what Nick Sirianni is like behind closed doors. I don't know what he's like in his office. I don't know what he's like communicating on the football field. I don't know. Maybe when he's on the football field, he's concise and and speaks eloqu- eloquently and is very good at communicating. But, you know, that's only half the job. If you're not communicating well with the front office, if you're not communicating well with the players, that is going to hinder you in the long run, especially with a team like the Philadelphia Eagles. And to bring this all back to, you know, my thoughts on Eric Bieniemy, which is kind of what started this this rant altogether, go watch an Eric Bieniemy conference. You know, you go and type up Eric Bieniemy press conference. One of the first ones that will come up was uh, his his interview in the 2019 divisional round of the playoffs, the year that they won the Super Bowl. And uh, he was he was first getting some attention for a head coaching hire, and he was fielding all these questions from reporters about it. And he sat up there with a smile. He had personality. He was funny. He was engaging, and he was eloquent in explaining what he wanted from his players, what he expected them to do, and he gave some great answers to some really frustrating questions. And then you watch that press conference and then go watch the Nick Sirianni press conference from last night or Monday or whenever it happened, and it was night and day. Night and day. And again, I will say, I went back and I saw some press conferences with Sirianni when he was with the Colts where he was with uh, with a Zoom meeting, and, you know, his personality was mostly the same. The way that he answered the questions were mostly the same. He's got good ideas, but, you know, the, the way that he presented him in those press conferences was much better than the way that he presented it in the Eagles press conference. Now, the, 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 the caveat is, is that being an offensive coordinator and being a head coach are two vastly different things in terms of what is expected from you. Obviously, there's a lot less pressure on you um, as an offensive coordinator. There's still pressure, but there's not that added pressure of having to handle an entire team. And, you know, that may that added pressure may be getting to Sirianni. Again, this is all hypothetical. I do agree somewhat with the people that are saying, hey, this is his first head coach press conference. Give him some slack. But on the other hand, it's like, come on, dude. He's been an NFL head coach. He's having he's been having to speak with the media for at least four years. He should know how to speak to the media by now. I can understand if you're nervous. Public speaking isn't for everybody. Not everybody can be a theater dork like me and project in front of an audience and and speak well most of the time. Obviously, sometimes I trip over my words. Not everybody is good at public speaking. And I can definitely understand if Sirianni was nervous. But at the end of the day, communication is something that you want out of your head coach. Being a good communicator, being a motivator, being able to say the right things at the right time. And yeah, being able to speak to the media. That is all extremely important. And I can understand if you're nervous, but at the end of the day, with the amount of experience that Sirianni has, he should have been able to handle that situation at that press conference better. And um, I'll be interested to see how he acts moving forward because definitely has a spotlight on him uh, moving forward. But we'll have to see. Eagles fans, let me know what you think about Sirianni. Are you confident in him as a hire still? Are you going to dismiss this awkward press conference? Or are you like, eh, maybe he wasn't such a good hire. Let me know what you think. Now, moving on to some some other news here. Something that I am deeply excited about 
the uh, EA Sports announced that they will be bringing back the college football games. And the if, for those of you who are unaware, uh, EA Sports develops a Madden football game pretty much every single year. And they also used to develop a college football game every single year. The last year that they did develop it, however, was in 2013 when Michigan quarterback Denard Robinson was the, the cover athlete for that game. And the college football games were widely loved, widely loved. Everybody loved those games. I loved those games play, uh, growing up as a kid. I love college football. And I think that with the atmosphere that college football brings, with all the traditions, the great uniforms, the the, the dynamics of, of, of recruiting, your players, redshirting, yada, yada, just the entire, I guess, scope of what college football is, I always found that so entertaining. So I was absolutely devastated when they stopped making those games. And they announced on Tuesday that they are bringing the EA Sports college football franchise slash series back. Now, there's no date for the game's releasing. It's more of just a widespread announcement that the game is happening. And I could not be more excited yet so terrified because... EA Sports has arguably kind of trashed the Madden franchise recently. Uh, I think this year's game, Madden 21, has one of the lower Metacritic ratings in the history of video games. Now, I, I didn't research that. That's kind of coming off of my own recollection. So for those of you who are fans of video games and fans of the Madden franchise, let me know if I'm correct on that. But uh, the games recently have been very harshly criticized for being very copy and paste, not very intuitive, buggy, uh, not very deep with, you know, your standard sports game modes like franchise mode, my career mode. They haven't been that deep. So, you know, it's the same company that's making those games that is going to be making this college football game. And I, I you know, a part of it is playing on my nostalgia for sure. It's like I miss playing those football games. I still have friends that play that version of NCAA Football 14, that last version, that last college football game that came out. I still have friends that play that football game. Um, and a lot of people desperately miss it, so a lot of people are excited that this game is coming out. But with the way that EA Sports has been treating the Madden franchise and trashing it for the past two years, I am so scared that I'm going to get all of my hopes up and the game is going to be some major butt cheeks. Now, uh, the one thing that I do want to talk about as well with this, and something that's very important, there's there's been a lot of debate within the last two to three years about whether or not college players should be able to profit off their likeness and uh, image. And that is something that has been a developing story in uh, Congress and, and, and uh, politics and, and, and lawmaking, yada yada. And with the potential of this game coming back, we could have a situation in which uh, EA Sports will have to be negotiating with college players to be able to use their likeness in these video games. And that is just a dream come true for me. That's a dream come true for anybody. Obviously, these young players get to be able to make a little bit of money for their efforts and for their natural talent. And also, we as fans and as players of the game are allowed to, you know, play with our favorite players. Like, imagine you using like a Joey Burrow, who is actually jo uh, Joey Burrow, uh, Joe Burrow. Imagine actually being able to use him in the game. Like he's got his face scan, he's got you know his 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 actual you know face in the game, his real attributes, as opposed to what would be 
uh, a case in which he would technically be in the game, but he would be a nameless number with a pre-registered, pre-scanned, copy-paste face, and it wouldn't be as accurate or as special. And, the, you know, the way that the community for these games has kept up recently is they have these dedicated community members who hand-make every single college football player on a roster and make a roster for that team and put it into the game and update it. Because one of the, the cool features that these video games have is that they have these downloadable rosters that anybody can download a roster with an internet connection. So as I said, there's a bunch of dedicated gamers who go in and make an accurate representation of the real-life players that we're playing today in a video game that's close to eight years old now. So... For example, you know, if I wanted to use, uh, let me let me see, if I wanted to use the Florida Gators, right? If I wanted to have a franchise mode or a Road to Glory mode or whatever it's called in 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 an NCAA football game, in in uh, NCAA 14 from eight years ago, I would be able to download a roster that has Kyle Trask, Canavius uh, Tony. Uh, a bunch of other, you know, really, and completely accurate, like these rosters are 100% accurate for the most part, uh, I would be able to play with the 2021 version of the Florida Gators in a 2014 football game because of these dedicated community members. So all of that is to say that if, um, I don't know who exactly EA Sports would have to work with, but if laws get passed in which college athletes can profit off their likeness, that would just elevate the experience of the football games even more. Obviously, a lot of uh, EA Sports is going to have to be working and marketing with, excuse me, they're going to have to be working and marketing with these colleges and universities anyway to be able to use the mascot, the tradition, yada, yada. So uh, that's something that they're going to have to do regardless. But uh, if, if athletes are going to be able to profit off their likeness and image, these football games have the potential to be pro like insanely profitable and also insanely fun to play so i know that this was more of, of personal news to me i know that everybody's not into video games and this is one of the rare instances in which sports and, and video games get to interact um even though that's becoming more of more of a common thing these days that video games and sports nerds and jocks are coming together to unite as one avengers assemble um don't copyright me Marvel, I'm kidding. I was just kidding about that. But still, I'm really excited about the return of these games, and I hope that uh, in a th three to four years' time, because let's be clear, is that even though that the game was announced to be coming back yesterday, uh, it's going to take two to three years at the very minimum to be able to code the game, create the game, and by then, who knows, you know, maybe the law will come into fruition that now these players are going to be able to profit off their likeness and we can have one kick-ass football game. LeBron James got into a bit of a scuffle, <laughs> a scuffle um, earlier in the week during when the Lakers were in Atlanta to take on the Atlanta Hawks. And I call it a scuffle, but it was really more of a of a shouting match. And uh, st stuff like this is why I absolutely love fans, and I am so glad that fans are coming back into the picture when it comes to. Um, these sporting events and how much fans make a difference and how much more fun fans make sports. You know, we really miss fans. I think, I think as a, as a sports community, as, as a sports fan, you, you miss yourself. You miss being able to go to the game. You miss being able to hear the crowd. And I'm sure that the players feel the same uh, about missing us as well. 
but fans also give us the opportunity to have a very hearty and hilarious laugh. Um, a, a meme, if you will. Um, this is this this instance is why I love reporting, and this is why you know sports need fans because this is hilarious. This is absolutely a nothing story. This is this is this is 15 minutes of fame if you could put a picture in the dictionary of it. Um, but it is absolutely funny. So, uh, play was stopped in the Lakers and Hawks game as LeBron and a couple of other Lakers players were jawing at the sideline and this, this man and his wife, and I think maybe it was the wife's friend as well. They were shouting back at LeBron James and these four people ended up getting ejected. Now, uh, there is only about 1,500 people that get allowed into these games, give or take. And the Atlanta Hawks aren't the best basketball team in the world anyway, so they're they're not going to draw a lot of patronage. But still, when LeBron comes to town, that's going to sell you tickets. So uh, there was about 1,300 people in the stadium there, as opposed to uh, 20,000 people in the stadium. When you're four of about 1,300 people, your voice is going to carry a little bit more. And in this situation, their voices definitely carried a little bit more. And it got the attention of LeBron James. And uh, they, LeBron James and the husband got into a bit of a, 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 a war with words. And they said their piece. And then the wife got into it. And this is <laughs> where this story gets absolutely funny to me. Uh, they got ejected from the game. LeBron James said after the game that they didn't deserve to be ejected, but they were most likely ejected because the wife decided to pull down her mask and yell at LeBron James. And uh, I I'm sorry for those of you on Spotify and, and Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts. You're not going to be able to get an image of what this person looked like unless you go search for it. But for those of you on YouTube, I I'll, I'll post a, a picture probably right here in the, the top left-hand corner. She looks like the cat meme, uh, the the cat yelling or, or the woman yelling at the cat meme where she's like, ah, like I'm pointing at you. I'm yelling. I'm screaming at you. And the cat's just like, whoa, lady, chill the heck out. <laughs> oh, man. And so LeBron says she didn't deserve to be ejected. The fans didn't deserve to be ejected. On the other side of things, uh, and this is why I love social media and why I love fans and how social media can just hop on top of everything and do some reporting and researching for you. They found this woman's Instagram and they found some Instagram stories of her blasting LeBron saying that, and I'm going to have to do some serious work with the censorship here. Uh, but they said that LeBron called her a, uh, a bish and that, <laughs> or, or, uh, called her a bish said, uh, for the husband to shut up and sit down, essentially, and she basically went on an F-bomb-fueled rant. You know what? It probably would be easier for me to play the audio file for you now. I'm just going to do that. Here you go. Just got kicked out of the game for talking to the girl game. For talking to husband. This is such Listen, let me tell you, LeBron James looked at my husband during the game and cussed him out, and I stood up and I go, don't talk to my husband. Talk to my husband one more time and I will you up. And he started fighting with me. He goes, shut your dumb bitch. And I go, you shut your bitch. <laughs> so obviously, there's some strong words coming from her. Um, I, I found this absolutely funny. I found this hysterical. I was having a really big laugh about this. Like, how dare you talk to my sugar daddy? I mean, husband like that. Yeah. 
I looked up who the husband was. He's Chris Carlos, and I'm like, okay, I without knowing what this guy does, I'm going to take a guess at what he does for his living. I'm going to say he does trading, commerce, or distributing. One of those three, or all of the three. And sure enough, he's a distributor. He he trades stock and and distributes um uh, resources, and he is obviously very very wealthy. And he is about 60 years old. Now, does anybody want to take a guess at the how old this young lady was? Oh, I kind of just gave it away. Um, you would take a look at her wearing a, a, a gigantic diamond necklace. Uh, there was a story on her Snapchat of her complaining about her really ridiculously nice high heels. Um, she was wearing, a, at least I think she was wearing some kind of, of, of fur coat as well. Um, she had lip filler, eyeshadow off the yin yang. You're thinking, well, maybe at, 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 at the best, she would be maybe 35 or 40. She was 25. <laughs> <laughs> again how dare you insult the sugar daddy or excuse me my husband how dare you talk to him like that the person who buys my lip filler and and my heels and buys me everything that I could ever want how dare you insult that honey um i need some new earrings um can can we like get some of those earrings on the way back from the game is that possible okay <laughs> It was just the funniest thing. Um, and I, you would only be able to find something like this because of the interaction between fans and athletes in sports. And that's why stuff like this is so spe uh, special. Now, LeBron, I don't know whether or not LeBron actually called her a bish or uh, I don't know whether or not what he said to the husband, uh, who was apparently a gigantic Hawks fan. But regardless of that, I mean, LeBron had his say as well. I think he called the, the husband uh, old steroid, <laughs> called him old steroid ass, which is hysterical. Um, I, like, again, there's no big story here, but this is why fans are so important to sports. We take it for granted. Obviously, we know like what home field advantage, what home court advantage means for teams and how much of an impact fans have for their sporting teams. But in terms of allowing athletes to flex their personality and, and interact with fans. Now, obviously, there are situations in which fans go too far using racial slurs, throwing things at players, yelling at players in their face a little bit too much. Obviously, that should be monitored and that should be dealt with by the prospective leagues. Uh, I'm sure that Russell Wilson, uh, not Russell Wilson, Russell Westbrook, uh, Damian Lillard, uh, some other NBA players would probably have other things to say about fan interactions apart from this. But I just love how interactions with fans allow players to express their personality. And LeBron is hysterical. <laughs> <laughs> calling this this guy this 60 year old businessman uh and republic distributor i think i think he is old steroid ass and then you have his 25 year old trophy wife and i'm trying to be nice about what i say about here but let's be honest when you're when your husband is in the 60 year old range and you're 25 uh and you know you have the lip filler and eyeshadow and deli and, and, and like deliberately over the top makeup and high heels and a and a shiny diamond necklace. It's like, look, let's call it what it is. <laughs> and she she was yelling at LeBron, like I said, don't talk about my husband like that. And then she does a little hair flip and sits down and and, and says, no, it's okay. I'm calm. I'm calm. It's okay. It's okay. And then they got ejected. And then.
She cursed out LeBron on her social media. This is the most 25-year-old trophy wife thing I think I've ever seen. Um, <laughs> at the risk of, of, of talking about it anymore. I just thought this was funny. No real story here. It'll be this couple's 15 minutes of fame, and we'll forget about them in, like, maybe two weeks or so. Maybe two weeks at maximum. But this is this is why sports need fans. We wouldn't get this type of, of hilarious interaction anywhere else. And um, I'm, I'm happy that fans are starting to come back into the picture. Uh, in, in respective leagues to end the show today. Um, I want to revisit a take that I had a couple of weeks ago. We've done a lot of revisiting today, a lot of nostalgia on the show today. We talked about, um, uh, my takes on Sirianni and, uh, Eric Bianame from last week. Uh, and now, you know, we, 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 or we, we, then we talked about, uh, the NCAA football games coming back, heavy nostalgia there revisiting that and now you know i want to talk again about the brooklyn nets and revisit my take from um the night that the Cavs beat the the houston uh, the houston nets the the brooklyn nets when the cavaliers beat the brooklyn nets on the debut of the big three and you know everybody was like wow you know there's this big three here and they, they lost against the Cavs, who are one of the uh bottom half teams in the league um, and everybody was like, well, hey, look, let's clown on the newly formed big three. You know, they're supposed to be this amazing offensive duo and they're losing to teams that they shouldn't. And now a couple, maybe a week and a half has passed, two weeks maybe. Uh, the, the league has kind of settled into that blockbuster trade a little bit. And the Brooklyn Nets this basketball season are very much so going to be a tale of two teams. The Nets lost to the Wizards, which are the worst team in the league at this point. Granted, it's not all of their fault, uh, but the Wizards are the worst team in the league at this point. The Nets lost to them on Sunday by a score of 149 to 146. Um, and that broke a four-game winning streak for the Nets. And then the Nets come back last night and beat the Clippers by a score of 124 to 120. The Clippers were on a five-game winning streak and are second in the Western Conference. And, you know, the reason why I want to revisit my take is that, again, I'm kind of reaffirming my stance on the position, having more evidence to back up the way that I think about the team. I said at the time, look, the, the, the Nets are going to get it together offensively. They have the potential to be offensively historically great, but they also have the potential to be historically bad in terms of defense. I said that at the time, and through the first, I don't know, six games that they've played, since the big three, since the Harden trade happened, uh, the Nets are, let me see the stats here, the Nets, since the James Harden trade, 122.6 offensive rating, it's the best in the NBA, would be the best of all time. They have a 119.9 defensive rating, which is the worst in the NBA, would be worst of all time. All of that to be said, I'm still not surprised either way about how the Nets are performing. In my mind, they are performing exactly as they should be. And any big media analyst, any big you know, sports guy that's telling you to think one way or another about the Nets, it, whether it's, wow, the Nets are, are, are badly underperforming, they should be winning every single game. Or wow, the Nets are now the best team in the league. You should, you should you know, be all on the Nets bandwagon. I'm sitting here in the middle saying, look, yeah, sure, maybe one of those is going to be true eventually, but right now, the Nets are exactly where they should be, 
and I am not surprised at all about what I've seen. I said that they were going to be offensively historically great and defensively historically bad. And because they are so bad on defense, they are going to lose games that they absolutely should not lose under any circumstances, i.e. losing to the Washington Wizards by a score of 149 to 146 on Sunday. You, you, you gave up nearly 150 points to the worst team in the NBA now, sure, Russell Westbrook and Bradley Beal had one of their best games together as a duo tandem so far, and obviously that played into it. But on the other hand, you're playing a potential NBA Finals contender in the Los Angeles Clippers, and Paul George had a good game. Kawhi Leonard had a good game. Um, Luke Williams had a decent game, sure. Uh, the Clippers were also missing Patrick Beverly. Reggie Jackson and Serge Ibaka had some really bad games, and that probably could have won them the game in the end. But regardless, the, the at the end of the day, it's going to be a question of, are the Nets going to be able to win enough games in a seven-game series purely because of offense? And from what we've seen so far in this season, as long as the big three tandem has been together, in my opinion... I'm not surprised by anything that's happened, and I'm still undeterred in my opinion in saying, look, the Nets are going to be able to win games that they should not win purely because based of their offense, and they're also going to lose games that they should not win or that, that they should not lose because their defense is that bad. Now, I will say I was impressed with Steve Nash. Um, as much as people maybe have things to say about how the Nets handled the remaining uh, minute or so of the game against the Clippers, I thought that Steve Nash really did a great job. Uh, they fouled the Clippers as they were moving up the court not once but twice, uh, forcing Nick Batum to shoot th uh, free throws. And of course, <laughs> poor Nick Batum, he missed the one that he should have made and then he made the one that he should have missed. But regardless, uh, up by three forcing the Clippers to shoot free throws. Really smart by Steve Nash, although a lot of people will disagree with that on a moral basis, saying, man, that's kind of some weak, sh some weak-ish, um, and, you know, that's kind of disrespectful, not disrespectful, but um, a little deplorable. Like, come on, like, let, let, let the ball, you know, decide the game. Don't foul. You know, there's always those basketball purists that are going to be like, come on, man, don't foul. But from where I'm standing, I'm like, look, Steve Nash made a calculated risk, uh, a calculated decision, and it ended up probably winning his team the game. Apart from the fact that, uh, let's see, the, the, the big three gave or, or scored about 93 points. Yeah. So uh, Irving had 39 in this game. Durant had 28. Harden had 23 and a triple-double. Uh, they scored about 93, or excuse me, 90 points against the Clippers. And in the game against the Wizards on Sunday, the Big Three scored 93 points. So on any given night, this is what we can definitively say about the Nets so far. On any given night, the three the three best players on the Nets, Durant, Irving, and Harden, are going to get you anywhere from 70 to 95 points a game, which is enough to win most games when you factor in the performance of the bench and... Um, Overall, how well you're playing defense, what, how you know how good the offense efficiency is of the of the team that you're facing, as well as how good defense you're going to play. That's going to be enough to win you most games in the NBA, especially in an Easter Conference that appears to be much weaker this season, uh, in comparison uh, to how last season was. So, again, I'm I'm revisiting 
my take on the Nets to kind of reaffirm and re-solidify my position. Look, I'm not surprised by anything that's happened. You really shouldn't be surprised by anything that's happened either. It's going to be a tale of two teams for the Nets this season. And again, the ultimate question is, when it comes down to a seven-game series in the NBA playoffs, is their offense going to be enough to be able to win them four games? And as I said, their offense is going to be good enough to win them some of those games that maybe they wouldn't be winning otherwise. And also their defense is going to be losing games for them that they should win. And that's the reality of the situation. Anybody that's trying to say, oh, I'm worried about the Nets because of this reason, or I'm sold on the Nets because of this reason, you shouldn't pay them any mind. You should just look at what the team is now. And when you look at what the team is now, everything plugs into place and makes sense. Nothing is surprising. They're historically great offensively, historically bad defensively, and that's where the Nets should be right now. That's where that may not be where they end up at the end of the season, but as for as to what it is right now, that's exactly what it should be. It's going to be a tale of two teams for the Nets this season. So that is the end of the show today. Hopefully um, you all enjoyed the show. I had a good time talking today. It was a very laid back, very funny show today. I felt like, so thank you all so much for being with here with me and listening to me rant about something that I love near and dear to my heart with sports. Again, thank you for 100 subscribers on the YouTube channel. Thank you for allowing me to sit up here or sit, uh, sit at my desk and talk sports with you all. And I hope that we can continue the momentum, the momentum moving forward. So Thank you for listening to the Hard-Headed Sports Podcast. This has been episode number 12, hosted by me, Nick Ryan. To all of you out there, stay hard-headed, but have a nice day.